0: Don't you hate when this happens? You get on a train, it's going to be a normal day, then suddenly you find yourself assailed on all sides by zombies or warring tribesmen. It's just so annoying. Sounds like it's time for episode 58 of Pop Art. The podcast where my guest chooses a movie from popular culture, and I'll select a film from the more art-classic indie side of cinema with a connection to it. I am your Why Is Your Ringtone So Tacky host, Howard Kastner. Today, I am happy to welcome as my guest, writer, director, producer, podcaster, Andrew Johnson Schmidt, who has chosen as his film, the action-packed South Korean new wave zombie flick, Train to Busan, while I have chosen the 1950s action flick taking place during the Raj in India, Northwest Front tier, aka Flame Over India, both about people on a train trying to get from point A to point B through territory filled with throngs trying to kill them. To begin, Andrew, why don't you tell our audience something about yourself?
1: Well, I make horror movies, sometimes with some comedy to them, sometimes not. Mostly supernatural stories. I've done shorts on the festival circuit. Right now, my wife and I, we co-make our movies. We have a feature that we're in post-production on.
0: Great. With that, let's get to your selection, and that is Train to Busan. First, some information about the film. Train to Busan is a South Korean action horror film released in 2016. It was directed by Yeon Sang-ho and written by Yoon and Park Joo-suk. And it stars, and please forgive me, I'll get half of these incorrect, Gong Yoo Ma dong seok Kim Soo-an, Jung Yoo-mi, Choi Woo-shik, Ahn So-hee, Kim Yui-sung, Choi Gui hwa Jang-hyuk Jin, Park Myung-sin, Yi-soo-young, Joon-sook, Han-sung-soo, Kim-chang-hwan, and shim Yun kyung In Train to Busan, a workaholic living in Seoul has no time for his eight-year-old daughter, but is guilted into taking time off work to accompany her by train to see her mother, who lives in Busan. They get on the train and take off just as a violent plague breaks out that is turning people into murderous zombies. It's the end of the line for everyone in one way or another. Why did you choose this film?
1: A couple reasons. I'm a fan of Korean horror. There's a lot of great horror coming out of Korea and it seems to have a little bit more legs than Japanese horror, which ebbs and flows. So I'm curious how that's going to go. I was especially interested because it seems to come from the George Romero school of social meaning and horror because it takes up things about homelessness and corporate morality. Also the relationship between Americans and Koreans. It's got the classic fast zombies versus slow zombies, which I'm always ready to debate. It also works along something I've been thinking about, where the plot line works on an axis, so the whole movie is racing in a particular direction. To me, it's especially goes back to the Romero thing. I always love a horror movie that is willing to deal with the problems of today, but giving you a good story and good scares so you don't feel like you're being lectured
0: When did you first see it?
1: I'd say I saw it maybe a year, year and a half ago.
0: And what did you think upon first seeing it?
1: Oh, I loved it. I thought it was fantastic work. The mix of practical effects and CGI was well done. The CGI wasn't too distancing. That can be a problem in zombie movies. If there's a lot of CGI, any kind of horror movie, it has a habit of creating a sense of distance between you and the scare that kicked Dario Ageno's butt in one of his films. I was impressed with that, and I was immediately wanting to see another uh, sequel or something, which I always take as a good sign.
0: And do you think it still holds up?
1: Absolutely
0: I first saw it when it came out Full disclosure, I think South Korea and Romania Are making the most interesting films in the world right now You said something about Train to Busan Having more legs than Japanese horror But I think South Korea has more legs Than almost any other country in the world When it comes not just to horror But to films all together While the films from Romania that we get over here Tend to be more focused on political and philosophical issues Most of the films that are successful successful over here from South Korea tend to be genre-focused. They're horrors, they're thrillers, crime. They do make other kinds of films, and they're wonderful too, but these are the ones that have become the most popular here. I think the very first South Korean film I saw actually was The Host. Yeah. Then I saw The Chaser, and then I saw The Good, The Bad, and The Weird, and from that point, I was just hooked. Yeah. I wanted to see more and more
1: South Korean films. What do you ascribe that to? Why the Koreans have this continued deep well to draw from?
0: One thing is that it's a whole new generation of filmmakers that had a whole new world opened up to them. Before 2001, the world didn't really pay a lot of attention to South Korean films. It's not that they didn't pay any. Perhaps the most famous one is one called The Housemaid, which is a very good South Korean film, highly influenced Martin Scorsese. He talks about it a lot and has been since re-made in South Korea. But there wasn't a lot of money the economy wasn't very good that made it very difficult to make films and there was a lot of censorship then suddenly around 2001 things changed the economy shot through the roof and censorship pretty much went bye-bye and you had a whole new generation filmmakers that just suddenly came to the forefront they're very successful in Korea as we'll find out especially about this film but the more successful they are worldwide and of course the more money is going to pile in the more filmmakers you're going to make and they just have a new vision
1: isn't it interesting You could probably point to a couple of times around the world where the censorship is relaxed in a sudden fashion. And suddenly all these people that have had to pull back on their creative vision to do it in doublespeak suddenly can race out there. You think about new Hollywood in America and and other countries like that. Also, the influx of money. People can go out to the movies. And people in South Korea, they go to the movies in a way that you and I might equate with America back before television.
0: Exactly. The other one that comes to mind, and I mentioned it, was Romania. What happened in Romania is... It became a democracy, more or less. They might argue just how much of a democracy <laughs> it is, but generally speaking, it became a democracy, and they could suddenly talk about their political past. They could suddenly talk about all these philosophical and government issues and things like that that they never could before. And suddenly, wham! A new economy, lack like of censorship, and you suddenly have this incredible influx of good original movies. Yeah. What are some of your favorite scenes?
1: So there's the side trip that they make into a station that they think is safe from the zombies.
0: That's the Dejan station, I believe.
1: So they know the army's there, and they get off, and they're really excited. They're finally going to be safe. In the background, we who've seen it before realize that the soldiers are turning into zombies. We know something that they don't know, and that gives you a great Hitchcockian, no, no, look behind you kind of thing. I also really enjoy power shifts in horror, where we, the audience, assume, to be strong becomes weak and vice versa and that suddenly goes for these people the strength of we can trust the army they'll keep us safe to holy cow the army is zombies and chasing us Then the racing that they do to get back on the train. Of course, we've seen in many train movies people racing to get onto a train as it pulls away. But the fact that they're being chased by zombies gives it a lot of tension. It goes to that access thing that I was talking about before. Everything, people escaping and people trying to capture them are going in the same direction. And then also on the train, the power struggle between the wealthy people and the people who look to them for leadership over whether they should open the doors to save people but possibly endanger them Like a game of chess paired nicely with the physicality of zombie attack.
0: You do have three, you might say, casts or social levels. Well, actually four, but the three main ones are the central character who is climbing ahead. He's, you might call him, upper middle class. Then you have the guy with the pregnant wife who's definitely working class. You have the street person, the homeless person. And then you have the CEO who is very Trumpian. I mean, it's just (laughs) if he had orange skin. And that's when you're talking about this dynamic between these social classes. The lower you go in the class, the less selfish and more focused they are on helping each other. The higher up you go, the more selfish and self-centered and will do anything to stay alive the way the people are.
1: The focus of the film, the male lead, he's at a moral tipping point in his life. We see at the beginning where he's being told, you want to move ahead, you have to do these bad decisions, bad for other people, unempathetic things. And now he's on the train. The whole thing tips on, does he become a... A morally upright person the whole movie with the evil CEO on one side and the honorable working class people on the other in the middle is the male lead who has to decide do I make good moral decisions and support the people around me or do I just take care of my own self and the people above me the whole film teeters on that another moral thing that's in there you talked about the homeless guy on there prequel to this is an animated picture called Soul Station and in that film it shows the start of the zombie epidemic and it vectors out of the homeless population because nobody is paying any attention to them. People are ignoring homeless people and their problems so much that they don't notice that they're getting infected with the zombie disease. This is the director, once again, making this all a moral conundrum with the survival of the species as the end result.
0: I do agree the first stop at the Dijon station is really a fantastic set piece. And you mentioned one thing about things happening in the background. Uh, The director, and we'll talk about the director more later on, does do marvelous things. But this is something that you'll see in Japanese films as well. It's a long tradition. I almost want to say in Asian films, but I'm not sure I could really say that categorically. But you constantly have someone in the foreground and then something is happening in the background. Yeah and you know it's not going to be good so that whenever you have someone in the foreground
1: <laughs> and
0: you're thinking uh oh something's about to happen. Yeah. The whole movie makes marvelous use of this. He leaves the little girl and the father then goes up to talk to the soldiers, realize there's something wrong But then, Meanwhile, everybody's running back to the train in the background and that's just so well staged. Yep. I like little scenes like the opening where the little girl sees someone attacked on the train station just as they're leaving. Ooh. Nobody else sees it but she's the only one we don't even see it that well so we're still not fully sure what's going on but the greatest scene for me has to be at the penultimate train station where they stop to change trains Yeah, with those zone shots of the zombies running for the train it's brilliantly directed it's brilliantly written everything comes to end there and it's just incredibly exciting at one point it reminded me of the shot in Gone with the Wind where they pull back (laughs) at the train station and you see all these soldiers lying on the ground and you feel this horror where here they pull back or they have these zone shots all these zombies running for this train. Yeah, Yongzang Ho is the director. He's a relatively new director. He hasn't made very many films and so far he seems to be focusing on horror zombie films. I have not seen any other films of his, but apparently you have because you saw Soul Station which is not really a sequel. It's a prequel more, isn't it? Or it takes place at the same time? Well,
1: that's the interesting point. It's a prequel. Allegedly, he did that first, but it was released second after Train to Busan tested incredibly well. I'd be curious to know for sure on that. He also subsequently has done a sequel to the whole thing. After swearing, he would not. I'm not going to be that guy. I'm not making Train to Busan 2. And then three years later, he did Peninsula, which is very similar to army of the dead in that it's a caper film during a zombie apocalypse
0: have you seen it did you like it
1: it was okay
0: that's what the critics seem to say. Yeah, he said he wasn't going to do a sequel, and he claimed, well, this really isn't a sequel. It's just a totally different movie. This happens around the same time. I have a feeling, and I hope this doesn't happen, Train to Sound was such a big success. He may have a hard time breaking out of that.
1: I could see that. Now, he's a guy who seems to be split between animated and live action, which is unusual. Right. So if he finds himself typecast, he might be able to get his way out by concentrating on the animated stuff with peninsula sometimes you have a film where the set pieces are quite good and the film as a whole is he had a gang in the zone of zombies that are basically doing cockfights it's zombies versus humans that's quite striking but as a whole there's something about train to busan you often hear people talk about that the success of a horror movie is to make you care about the central characters and then to basically torture those people so that the audience is really riveted on those people being saved. I think the success of to Busan is largely based on the fact that he did pull that off. You really do care about those people, and early on, and then he has the whole rest of the movie to basically get them up a tree and throw rocks at them.
0: I don't think the film would have succeeded if I didn't become emotionally involved in the characters or care about them. I even read a review where the person said the film had no heart, and I'm thinking <laughs> that's the reason why I like the film is because it had heart. So I didn't really know what he meant So far, it seems like Jon is a director of great promise if he can find a way to a point where all he can do are zombie films. I mean, Romero never really was able to break out of that. He tried, but he just couldn't quite ever do it. I'm not sure Romero is anywhere near as good a director as
1: Jon is. But I think you agree that Jan does do a magnificent job of directing here. He's really good with a set piece. He gives you good logic. set piece needs logic. You have to feel like, okay, I know this, I know this, and based on that, holy cow, this happens. When you're talking about Romero, Romero's very good at the big picture. He's good at creating moral conundrums. I always felt that he just was kind of like a nice guy who did a shambling picture. Mm -hmm. Because of that, he really couldn't amp things up in the way that that he might have. I think it took him a while, too, when he was at his hottest at the beginning to reconcile himself with, Buddy, you're a horror director. He tried to get off of that track, and I think it really stuck a stick in the spokes of his momentum.
0: Yeah, he stumbled upon this approach to zombie films that set the standard, and pretty much everybody, when they make zombie films, whether they differ from Romero or not, they always have to look at Romero and figure out how their zombie film fits in with his, whether they go in a different direction or not. The screenplay was by Yon, as well as Park Jusuk. This was Park Jusuk's only second film. He did write one before. There are some interesting aspects to the film. It's Especially when it comes to the zombie aspect of it. To a certain degree, they are creating their own myth of the zombies that don't agree with others that came before them. They're basically the same. You get bitten by a zombie, you turn into a zombie, you want to attack other people. But here, zombies won't attack if they can't see you, and they can't see in the dark.
1: That was interesting. It actually made me think a little bit about the Chinese vampire ghosts, which is a similar situation. They have to smell your breath. So that's that's an interesting comparison between the two.
0: That's another thing. One of the things that has really never been answered for a long time is how do zombies know who a zombie is and isn't? Right. They start making a joke of it in Shaun of the Dead, but they just start shambling along like zombies. They just start acting like zombies and the zombies don't attack them. That was a comedy, and it was actually satirizing. This idea has never been resolved. In The Walking Dead, it's the smell. You smell a certain way if you're one of The Walking Dead. So you can get through them if you can get through whatever the smell is. Uh, then you can blend in. In World War Z, they won't attack you if you're sick. But here, it's just whether they see you or not. And they don't really explain how they can tell whether you're a zombie or not. So it probably has something to do that when they attack someone, they pass on the plane. And what they can do is they can tell who has the plague and who doesn't.
1: There's only a limited number of causes that you can go to. And get curious is when you look into a zombie film, which one are they going to go with? In this case, they go for pollution that comes out of American interaction economically in South Korea, which in South Korea is a hot-button subject, so they're smart to do it for the local audience.
0: Well, that is an interesting thing. If you watch the very first Japanese movies with Godzilla, it was always America's fault. And in The Host, it's America's fault. It's always America's fault. I always thought that was amusing. Because I'm going, it's America's fault We didn't attack Korea, we didn't take over China We didn't do all this other stuff So if you want to blame us, that's fine The war's over, we'll just let it all go But I tend to smirk about things like that And Korea is in a very interesting position They're caught between North Korea, China, Japan, and America And that's a very tense situation to be in The other thing is that, unlike George Romero did They don't eat people They just attack them and pass on the plague and then that's it whereas in Romero's approach they eat which causes some problems, which actually we'll talk about later because we'll talk about zombie films as a whole later on. Some other things I noticed is they can't figure out things like door handles. They can't really think in that fashion. Once you get them in a train, in a car, that's it. They can't get out. The farther the bite is from the brain, the longer it takes to turn into the zombie. And the one big issue I have with it is at the very beginning when the animal stands up after being killed. Does that mean mosquitoes can turn into zombies, flies, cats, Dogs. That's a whole area. A door. I don't think you really want to open.
1: I assume that's where they got the idea for the zombie tiger in Army of Death. It is a new area that hasn't been approached.
0: Yes, but once that happens, especially if with mosquitoes, you see the movie The Birds. Well, yeah. then it definitely is over once that happens. Yeah. And it'll be over in very a very short period of time.
1: Chain about the doorknobs. I found that interesting. That was a dilemma that Romero got into where he was like, there's only so much I can do with zombies. So he came up with the zombie character, of Bud, who is not quite as decomped, if you will, as the rest of the zombies. He still has something of a personality. He has somewhat more skills left to be able to do things. And during the course of the Romero films, it's almost like they're recovering. They get better. They learn how to use guns again and things like that. It is a conundrum. How do you handle something beyond the pure zombie attack? How much do you give them in terms of their own agency beyond just biting and eating? It's, it's interesting, the decision here to, to draw the line at doorknobs.
0: Since we're talking about this and you're talking about what to do with zombies, we'll come back to the screenplay again. But we might as well get into zombieism and living dead and the history of that. I've been there from the beginning. I did not see Night of the Living Dead when it first came out. But I was at the opening night in Chicago for Dawn of the Dead. Ah. I go back that far with zombies. And I thought Dawn of the Dead was one of the best movies of the year. Mm -hmm. But after that, you can only see so many zombies films before either one or two things they get repetitive Or you start seeing faults in the whole equation. But, you know, there were fun ones like Return of the Living Dead. They're back and they're ready to party. Where we're getting into postmodern zombie stories, where you're starting to have a world where zombieism or the living dead is assumed. And it's no longer why is it happening and what can we do to stop it? It's more like what do we do to live with it? And how do we survive over a long-term period? The more, though, it went on, the harder it was for me to find zombie movies that exciting. I would see some here and there. Stakeland was one, Shaun of the Dead was definitely one, World War Z, I really liked a lot. But one of the big problems I have with zombie films is that sooner or later, and this really hit me with 28 Days Later, the movie makes no sense at all plot-wise, sooner or later, the living dead have to disintegrate. The reason why we don't disintegrate as live people is we take in nourishment, we take in food. George Merrow posited the living dead as people who eat. Well, once they no longer have anything to eat, which they run out of actually pretty quickly because once you turn into a zombie, they don't want to eat you anymore. You eventually have to just disintegrate. Zombies can only last for a finite amount of time. And 28 days later, I'm going, I'm sorry, it's 28 days later. All these people, they should be dead. They can't be alive anymore. So that's why I tend to have a lot of problems with the living dead and zombie movies. I'm finally getting to all the faults. This one, is, it's just the beginning of the zombie outbreak. Basically, the same thing is going to happen. These zombies are just going to stop functioning one day because there's nothing to keep them functioning if they don't eat, if they don't take in nourishment.
1: I agree with you. My biggest issue with zombie films, the latter ones, the fast zombie films in particular, is I think of a successful film as a team act between the people who make it and the people who watch it. Like two people carrying a couch together and both of them bring to it their part of the equation. The problem with fast zombies is that the mind of the audience just gets overwhelmed. It's like eating a very rich food. At a certain point, you're done. You can't have a new emotional moment with what happens. World War Z it was a real good example. After a, just a deluge of CGI zombies happen, you're like, well, okay. It just blurs out and becomes gray text. That's why I tend to prefer a slow zombie. Keep things as small and incremental as you can, so that the audience can emotionally not be burnt out by what they're watching.
0: I understand that. I prefer the slow ones, though, for a slightly different reason. This was often stated at the time. You actually start feeling sorry for the zombies if they're slow moving, because they're so easy to take out, if you have the manpower to do it. They're just shuffling along. You eventually feel so sorry for these dead people.
1: And I think that also adds to the horror aspect of it, because in your mind, kind of like the people in the movie, you're like, well, these are slow moving. I can run around them. I can outlast them, whatever. And then through a mistake you make or something you didn't see, they get you. To me, that is a more satisfying kill because it seems almost like fair play.
0: Yes, that's it. When the zombies start becoming fast movie zombies, for whatever reason, you start going, well, that doesn't seem
1: fair. You get a tactical victory, but a strategic loss as a filmmaker.
0: Once you stop feeling sorry for the zombies, even though you know they need to be killed, something can leave the movie and make it not quite as fun. Technically, the movie is just quite impressive. The direction, the editing, the cinematographer. I think the editor, Yang Jinmo, is quite impressive here. He has done a lot of recent Bong Joon-ho movies. He did Okya, Parasite, and Snowpiercer. He seems to be becoming a very big name in Korea for editing films. And then the cinematographer was Lee hyung jook who did The Housemaid and A Company Man. It was one of my top 10 films of the year. It's just beautiful. Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely.
0: But in addition, In many ways, one of the biggest people to think is Jang Yung-gai, who did the music. He is one of the biggest names now. Uh, I did Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, The Yellow Sea, The Good, Bad, and the Weird, The Wailing. One of the things about it is that the music matches our heartbeat and our pulse. So whenever you get that music going, it's just making your heart beat harder and your pulse beat faster.
1: I agree. Like a good DJ that way, he matches it, and we don't notice he's matched it, and then he ratchets it up, and we subconsciously start following. That's just great horror filmmaking music there. I was just going to throw this in too. Something that I enjoyed in this film that is kind of unusual, they do zombification of identifiable groups. So there's ball players, soldiers, salarymen, grandmas, and you see them still wearing the clothes that denote their subgroup when they become zombies. I thought that was interesting because it let me sort them out with my eye in a way that sometimes gets lost in zombie films.
0: I think that's a very good observation. I read that clothing is a very big distinction as to what class of society you belong to, much more so than, say, in the U.S., where you can't really always recognize who comes from what social status based on the clothes they wear. Yeah. Well, with that, here's some more information about the movie. It cost $8.5 million to make and made $98.5 million. $80 million of that was made in South Korea. It was number one at the box office and is the sixth highest-grossing Korean film of all time. As you say, an animated prequel, Seoul Station, also directed by Yeon, was released less than a month later. And then The Peninsula was released july fifteenth, twenty twenty, but it got mixed reviews. On So He, who plays the character Jin He, she's the cheerleader friend of the main baseball player teen, is an ex-member of the famous K-pop group Wonder Girls. In 2016, Gamont acquired the rights for the English language remake of the film from Next Entertainment World. In 2021, New Line Cinema, Atomic Monster, and Coin Operated were announced to be the co-producing partners for the remake, with Warner Brother Pictures distributing worldwide. Indonesian director Timo Tahahanto is in talks to helm the film, while Gary Duberman adapts the screenplay and will co-produce the film alongside James Wan.
1: It's the kind of announcement that is inevitable, and yet it just makes you go, you're right, they're going to cast Nick Cage in it. They're going to mistake what the real core things that drove the original story were. I'm not absolutely against American remakes. Goodness gracious, French comedies re-emerging as American comedies is a time-honored tradition. But when these American comedies remake it, their inability to understand what made the first one work is astonishing
0: i do find that happens a lot the korea train express often known as ktx is south korea's high-speed rail system operated by co construction began on the high-speed line from Seoul to busan in 1992 ktx services were launched on april 1st 2004 busan is the end of the line it's a southern resort city but normally it's just an hour train ride with that, let's get to my selection, and that is Northwest Frontier, a.k.a. Flame Over India. First, some information about the film. Northwest Frontier is a British adventure film released in 1959. It was directed by J. Lee Thompson and written by Robin Estridge, adapted from a script by Frank S. Nugent from an original story by Patrick Ford and Will Price. It stars Kenneth Moore, Lauren Bacall, Herbert Lom. Wilfred Hyde-White, I.S. Johar, Ursula Jeans, Eugene Deckers, Ian Hunter, Jack Willem, Govan Roger Ross, and Basil Hoskins. Northwest Frontier takes place in 1905 in the northwest frontier of India, which is now present-day Pakistan. When an army of Muslims revolt against the Maharaja of the province because he is loyal to the British, an army officer and the governess of the Maharaja's heir must get the little boy to safety before the rebels kill him. To do this, they must take him by train, along with a handful of others, through a countryside teeming with rebels who want to kill them. What do you think of the pairing of the two films?
1: Well, I was intrigued when you brought it up because I would not have made the connection other than the train aspect. And the more I thought about it, I understood what you were talking about, how the the train is both an enclosed space and it's in transit at the same time. It's an unusual pair of films to combine. What led you to it? Basically,
0: it's the same story. It's about an adult taking a child from point A to point B, on a train, through hostile territory, where everybody is trying to kill them. We'll talk a little later that this film, as well as Train of a Sand, actually has its own sub-genre. The genre was made famous by Stagecoach in which you get a group of disparate people on a journey under intense pressure and you see what happens to them. They may be a Western, it may be a horror film, it may be an epic adventure, it might be Lifeboat where they're stuck at sea. But it's all a character study of how people act under intense pressure.
1: Yeah, I've always thought that really what's at the heart of this here, my trepidation about Northwest Frontier in comparison with training to Busan Trent de has the advantage, zombies, you don't care about zombies. You can feel sad about them a little bit, but when they get gunned down, it's danger that's been removed. Whereas when we look at Northwest Frontier and films like that, now we find ourselves going, well now, that's a human, that's a person. There's a reason why they're doing what they're doing. Do you understand that reason? Why it's a dicier thing today to make that movie than it is to make a zombie movie
0: that's certainly true and we're definitely going to be talking about or what is now called problematic aspects of films because yes this movie does have problematic aspects to it and it's not just that these are human beings it's the way they're treated and it's the raj and the attitude toward the locals that make up the problematic aspects of the film but when did you first see the film when you brought it up had you been aware of it before no just another programmer to me I first saw it when I was very young. I was probably junior high or high school. On television in those days, when it was only commercial networks. In the morning, you would have a movie every day. And it would be with some sort of game, like dialing for dollars. But then every night at 10.30 Texas time, you would also have another movie. And since I was interested in movies, I would often watch these. What it would normally be is there would be one really good one. (laughs) Paired with two or three, that were either above average to below average, i not one really bad one. And that's because these were bought in packages. They were packaged together, sold to the local stations. And that's when I first saw it. I know you have some problems with the film. What do you think about the film, though, overall?
1: I think it's solid. If I was going with Angie out to a drive-in back in the day, and that was the bottom half of the picture in a double feature, I would have felt like I got my money's worth.
0: I think I like it a bit more than you do. I fully recognize... It's not going to go on the side and sound or the cares to cinema list of the greatest films ever made. I think you're right. It is a programmer. I think it's an above average programmer. It's often very entertaining. But yes, this is not like a great, great film. As you say, you've never heard of it. Most people probably haven't, if I hadn't stumbled upon it on the late show one night, I might not know what it is as well. Do you have any favorite scenes?
1: When they're on the train and they've had to stop because the rail has been torn up, which of course made me think about our American Civil War with the Yankees getting very good at coming up with ways to bend the rail so it couldn't be replaced easily. And their idea of pulling the rail from behind them, now it alternately traps them because when they pull up the rail they can't go backwards but it does give them a chance to go forwards that was intriguing and then when the rebels catch them out in the open there and so they have to slither along the track to replace the rail i found that solid bit of action and, and suspense with the action that was probably one of my favorite moments
0: One of my favorite moments is the very first stop when they come upon the refugee train and everybody has been horribly massacred and then they find the baby. And that's sort of the first adventure they go through and going along the way. I also like the little scene where Ursula Jean's Lady Windham, asks Herbert Lahm to get her case because she suspects that he's Muslim when he is very careful about taking the case down. You know, everybody in the audience goes, oh, he's Muslim and hasn't revealed it. Overall, I do have to admit, I think the very first time I saw it, I saw the edited down version, because the one released in the U.S. had been edited down. And then the last two times I've seen it, I've seen the full two-hour version. I think it's a little slow. Mm-hmm. So my memory of it, when I first saw it at the hour and 45 minutes or whatever, is, oh, this is really fast and exciting. And I watched the two-hour version, I'm going, boy, this seems a little slower. <laughs>
1: Some things also that came out to me, one was Herbert Lom. That actor was really good at playing characters with deep anger underneath right. their civility. He certainly did that in the Pink Panther films. So that was a lovely bit of character actor. You could bring that in with him. The other thing that I caught was Lauren Bacall is, of course, very, very good at playing Lauren Bacall as with her husband Humphrey Bogart, was very good at playing Humphrey Bogart. But Bacall is the same issue that Bogart does in that while they can show up and serviceably do their business under a serviceable director, a truly great director can liberate them in part to give us some depths underneath that. And in this picture, Bacall is playing the nurse whose husband is dead. She's not going to be some lying, crying, hiding woman. She's strong. She's going to do the thing. She has compassion in there, but it's underneath her strength. All that stuff's there, but it seems airtight. It can't get loose, and I think it's because the director can't give her the ability to play anything other than what's on the page.
0: I actually think this is one of her better performances. I do take what you mean, that when she's with Humphrey Bogart, there is something more to her on the screen. I was never really that impressed with Lauren McCall as an actor. I greatly disagree with your analysis of Humphrey Bogart, who's one of my favorite actors of all time. He's a certain kind of actor who does certain things, but those things he can do are just really fantastic and can be used over a wide range. Of- oh,
1: no, I'm you and I are in agreement on Humphrey Bogart, absolutely. What I'm saying is is that while Bacall and Bogart are both serviceable in the hands of a serviceable director, their genius is allowed free when they have a director. Look at To Have and To Have Not, okay? Mm-hmm. She has the stone face. That she does so well but she also opens up to the second mate in the boat she opens up to the piano player she's more open to other people so you can see that there's layers to this woman bogart any number of films where he opens up in the hands of a director who gives him that ability i just feel like in northwest frontier Bacall is not being given anything to do other than play the lines on the page
0: What do you think of the directing by J. Lee Thompson?
1: I think it's solid. I think he's an action director. I mean, he's Guns of Navarone and other pictures like that. He's serviceable. He's solid. I think his pictures, the budgets go up as time goes on. And I think it gives him an ability to take that serviceable action direction to bigger heights in terms of production value, camera movement. Of course, he gets better actors as well. Obviously, we're not going to hang the word auteur around his neck. But I think he's a guy who makes his days and does a solid picture.
0: I think that's very true. He knows how to get the job done. He does get the job done. This led him to other things. He never made a great picture, but he made very solid pictures. You mentioned The Guns of Navarone. And if you're into film noir, people rave about Cape Fear. So he does have a certain cachet to his name. But this was the film that sort of made him. It wasn't a success in the U.S., but it was a success in England. And it did lead him on then to do The Guns of Navarone. He became much more commercial. His paycheck went up. The screenplay is by Robin Estridge, who did a lot of action films at the time. What is interesting, and now we can get back into another aspect of it, is that the original story was co-written by John Ford's son, Patrick Ford, and Maureen O'Hara's husband, Will Price, with a final screenplay adapted from a script by screenwriter Frank S. Nugent, the writer of 11 Ford Films. So as I mentioned before, this is the character study of people in an intense situation. The very first film that really made this big, I can't say it was the first film that did it, but it was the first film that really made it big and made it a Its own subgenre was John Ford's *Stagecoach*, in which a lot of people are traveling by stagecoach point A to point B through hostile Indian territory. But then you think have *Lifeboat*, where people are stuck on this lifeboat, and you start finding different films that are like that. *The High and the Mighty* is *Stagecoach* on a plane. And Frank Elm as I said, he wrote 11 to four films, including Fort Apache and The Searchers and The Quiet Men. So basically, this is part and parcel in this stage type of vein. And so is Train of Usain, where you're just taking a group of people, putting them in this situation. It only works if you get involved with the characters.
1: Personally, and I'm not alone in this, Stagecoach to me is one of the greatest action pitchers ever. To me, like the most dangerous game, you can take Stagecoach and put it down in any culture, any time period, and have a solid pitcher. Because everything is you've got your close game with your principal actors, and you got your far game with the action of trying to get away from an implacable foe. Again, as I said earlier, it's harder to do a boy's own adventure movie nowadays because part of what makes these films work is we don't care about, and we don't think about the antagonists. In a way, it's almost like gravity or a great storm. When you and I see a movie about uh, sailors out on the ocean being caught up in a horrible once a century storm, we don't question the water. What is the water's backstory? Why are they doing the storm? No, we don't worry about that. We can focus on the main characters. With Stagecoach and movies like that, you could do that same thing because we didn't wonder about why the Apaches were doing what they were doing. Now we have the problem that we are more open to caring about the other half of the equation and it makes for a different film.
0: It is part of the modern trend of criticism in which we are looking at the diversity aspects of these films. Yes, this is a problem. I mean, it's a problem with Stagecoach, too, where you have these nameless Indians just being shot. There's no sympathy or empathy or understanding shown for the Indians. Stagecoach is still one of the greatest movies ever made, but it still has some problematic aspects of it. This is a problematic movie. It's 1959, and sometimes I'm wondering if the audience at the time were still celebrating the Raj with no sense of irony. Yes. Lady Wyndham, who has a line about... Britain bringing civilization to India. I'm going, did the audience laugh at that in 1959? Because I really wanted to laugh at that. I found that just to be a very funny scene. And when Wilfred Hyde-White starts treating Herbert Long with more kindness, because some of Hyde-White's best friends are half-breeds, are we supposed to laugh? It's unclear. But it was a big hit, so they might not have been. One critic said that, this movie, in some ways, was a reaction to the Suez Crisis, which was a big mistake on England's part. It was a disaster. And so we have this, they'll always be in England, and the sun never sets on the British Empire film in 1959, celebrating the Raj with absolutely no irony. Right. Like, how, how are we supposed to feel about that? How do the audience feel about that? They even quote Kipling at the end
1: Well, Northwest Frontier takes place after the separation of India from the UK. I mean, when this film comes out. You've already had Gandhi. The audience, at least in the U.S., because we're more dispassionate in this, it's not our empire. The U.K., of course, you can see why they would love it, because it's vindication for the Raj. The rebels themselves as you would imagine, they're all dressed fairly similarly. They all look pretty stock. They came from central casting. We don't deal with the conundrum of why are they doing this? They're just doing it. Right. From
0: Lady Wintham's point of view and even I think Hyde White's point of view, this is just the way they were. They were killing each other and going after each other before we got there. We got there and put a stop to it and brought civilization there. And I'm going, This is nineteen fifty nine. England has fought Two wars in Europe in which nobody got along, and you have the audacity to lecture India on the various tribes and groups in India not getting along. Physician, heal
1: yourself. So... (laughs) And the Indian audience, if they were to say, any Indian person seeing this, or Pakistani, would know that it was less than 20 years since the famine that hit during World War II, that Churchill specifically decided, you know, we're not going to do anything about that because it'll interfere with fighting the Germans. The vast amount of Indians end up starving to death. So when anything comes out that's Raj-ish at this point, they're not going to really see the hurrah in this.
0: There's a website called Colonial Film, and it had this comment. Lady Wyndham is perhaps the strongest supporter of the Imperial Project, declaring in the face of criticism that half the world mocks us, and half the world is only civilized because we have made it so. The film does not wholly endorse this verdict, but critics of the British Empire win no arguments. Herbert Long comes along and tries to argue against it, and he starts making good arguments, but the screenplay never allows him to win the argument, and his arguments ultimately, they're never complete. He never really is able to get into the reason why everything that's happening is happening.
1: Now, here's an interesting thing to add to what you're talking about there. The people that made this film, it's an industrial film. It's been made by a Hollywood studio, so its end goal is to make money. They know their American theater audience, and they know their British theater audience. What they haven't woken up to yet is that there is a vasty amount of tickets sold in India, so when they're carving up the moral center of this film, they're thinking about an American audience, they're thinking of a British audience, probably made all the more so that they have american tickets they want to sell in england because of the financial disparity between the two countries they're absolutely not thinking about any other marks and i think that's guiding their decision but they're blinders that they've already got in place as white america obviously that that's a bigger part of it but i think the fact that they're not really understanding the available markets is influencing it as well
0: There is one interesting line sort of connected to this, and that is the arms dealer, the one who sells arms. He's talking about, well... We can't sell to one and not the other, as he tells Lady Wyndham. Do you only want us to sell to Britain? And of course, I'm going, no, the last thing, I would want you to only sell to Britain. But he makes a very interesting remark. What, you don't want us to sell to Japan or Germany? And I'm going, that's a very odd statement to make. Because in 1905, England had just signed a major accord with Japan as allies. I know there was the Crimean War, but I'm not sure overall at that point, England and Germany were necessarily massive enemies. So this line obviously refers to World War II. Would we want him to not sell to Japan or Germany? And the Germans are Japanese, not the enemies.
1: At that point, the Japanese were allies.
0: Right. One other small thing I thought was interesting about the screenplay is that at the very beginning when Lauren McCall is talking to Kenneth Moore, she's realized they're going to be stuck together. And she says, for better and for worse. And they went, well, that's a setup for how their relationship is going to go. <laughs> and then they get a baby half, halfway through the movie as well. Yes. <laughs> Not going, okay, we get it. But <laughs> I do enjoy the acting very much. I do realize that these are types of I mean, you can't get much more of a type than Wilfred Hyde White. This is the character he plays in every single movie he's in. He's wonderful in every single movie he's in. But this is the somewhat befuddled Englishman who means well. The movie was criticized for the portrayal of the, the Motor Man. It is a stock Indian character, not much farther from Gunga Right. Uh, to enjoy this film, I think, to a great degree... You do have to overlook a lot and just look at it as a solid, fun, action-adventure film, but forget about the politics. I do it for a lot of films. I do it for Stagecoach. It all depends on how far you're willing to go. A couple of other things that uh, should be mentioned. The cinematography. What did you think of that?
1: I thought it was solid. I thought, as you would imagine, it would benefit by being me seeing it on a big screen as opposed to on the relatively small screen apartment. I'm always curious when I see films from that time period because, as you know, usually the color has not benefited by time. They were made to be seen on a big screen. In America, in many cases, big screen outdoors. What I'm seeing, in the same way that my eyes about the politics are not the eyes that they were making the movie for, my eyes, in terms of the look and feel, are different as well.
0: I do think the cinematography is gorgeous. I think it's one of the things that makes the movie as exciting as it is. The cinematographer is by Jeffrey Unsworth, who is one of the great cinematographers of all time. He worked on 2001. He did Superman. He won Oscars for Tess and for Cabaret. He is at the top tier when it comes to cinematographers. And I think you can see why he's considered one of the best in this movie. The music is also also very good. It's done by Misha Spilinski, who is known more for smaller films, Sanders of the River, the Ghost Coast West, The Man Who Good Work Miracles, and The Battle of the Villa Fiorita*. He never quite entered the top tier uh, like Jeffy Unsworth did. It's a nice score. As you say, it's very solid.
1: Yeah. When you were talking about Unsworth, I always thought of Unsworth as a very solid DOP. Give him more tools... You give him a more inspired director, you get a more inspired picture, but he's always going to give you a a good-looking picture.
0: Right. I think Cabaret was incredibly brilliant when it came to the cinematographer, Uh, very different because it's more enclosed than epic, as this was. It beat out Godfather that year. It was a close, close competition, as to who should have won. I have no problem with Jeffrey Onsworth beating out The Godfather that year. For me, he's just one of the greats. In closing off, There's one thing. I have a personal affection for train films. (laughs) I don't know why. It's a subgenre that I love. But I enjoy watching them, even bad ones. If you're going to have a movie that's based on a mode of transportation, they seem to be in many ways the most dramatic. They're a metaphor for the movie you need to get from point A to point B. So that's the plot. The train itself is the plot. They're confined, but they're not as confined as a bus or a car or airplane. But unlike an airplane, it takes longer to get places on a train. So you have a drama that is spread out over a longer amount of time usually than a plane. So I think there's something really interesting about train films that I enjoy very much and I always have.
1: Well, I love the fact, like I was saying, that with train film, you've got two films happening simultaneously. You've got your close-in film, the people that are stuck in the train together, and you've got, in many cases, a second film, which is the action, the train it's moving through, the chase, the attack. And anytime you can have multiple things happening in a movie, I, I think you got a better movie. Snowpiercer is a good example of a train film like that. I love Runaway Train... The original script by Akira Kurosawa, I was really happy that he got to have a second life in America with Runaway Train in 1985. And then, of course, there's all the westerns with the trains. It's not a movie, but Firefly, the train job episode, which I thought was a movie unto itself, it was fantastic that one that,
0: here's some more information about the film. It cost 500,000 pounds to make, but
1: I don't know how much it
0: made. However, it was a huge hit in England. It was one of the six most popular films at the box office in England. I think it fairly well when I noticed in the U.S. It received three BAFTA nominations, best film from any source, best British film, and best British screenplay. J. Lee Thompson is responsible for introducing the world to Haley Mills in one of his very first films called Tiger Bay, where Haley Mills plays a young teen who wins. Witnesses, a murder, and her father, John Mills, is also in it. He went on to make nine films with Charles Bronson. Lauren Bacall called it a good little movie with a stupid title. <laughs> and by that, she was referring to the U.S. title Flame Over India. I tried to find out why they changed the name for the American audience, and I couldn't get a reason but But my guess would be that it's too close to the Spencer Tracy movie Northwest Passage and a television series at the time called Northwest Passage. They wouldn't want the audience to get confused. The song Captain Scott sings and which is used as an occasional theme, especially at the end, is the Eton Boating song, often heard in the Ealing comedies like the Lavender Hill Mob and the Tipfield Thunderbolt. With that, let's start closing out. I asked you to choose a film or two to go into your choice that might be of interest to our audience.
1: If they were interested in training to Busan, of course, I've got to point them towards Dawn of the Dead, the original. I think George Romero made two great zombie films and anything he did for the rest of his life. That's okay by me as long as you did those two. Dawn of the Dead gives you your political stuff happening in the background. It gives you your solid action and a simple goal. In the same way that Train to Busan, they're just trying to get to Busan, damn it. In Dawn of the Dead, they're trying to get away from the zombies in the mall, get on the helicopter and get gone. Snowpiercer, it's not a zombie film. It's humans acting like zombies. And as you mentioned before, South Korea is going through a horror renaissance. It's going through a film renaissance period. I would suggest people just Google up South Korean horror and dig in.
0: I agree with that. For me, I'm going a little overboard because I'm going to list some of my favorite train films. The Lady Vanishes is Alfred Hitchcock's 1938 classic about a woman who meets an elderly governess on a train. When the governess suddenly disappears, no one believes the woman and claims the governess never existed. Terror by Night, released in 1946, finds Sherlock Holmes and his companion Watson on a train guarding a jewel of great value. When murder happens and the jewel disappears, they must resolve the mystery. This is actually my favorite Rathbone, Bruce, Sherlock Holmes. The Train is John Frankenheimer's 1944 World War II drama with Bert Lancaster, in which Lancaster, a member of the French resistance, must decide if it is worthwhile trying to stop a German general from absconding with some of the greatest works of art in the Louvre and taking them back to his home in the closing days of the war. And as you mentioned, Runaway Crane is Andrei gotchalovsky's 1985 action film based on a screenplay by Akira Kurosawa, in which two escaped convicts and a railway worker find themselves trapped on a train with no brakes and nobody driving. And in Richard Fleischer's 1952 film noir, The Narrow Margin, a detective must protect a woman planning on testifying against the mob on a train from Chicago to Los Angeles. And I could go on, but I won't. So what is next? What should we be looking for from you?
1: Like I said, I'm in post-production on a film at the moment, our first feature called Witch Child, which we financed using uh, social fundraising. Unfortunately, I talk about the curse of some movies. One of our key collaborators passed on right as we wrapped uh, principal photography. Oh, wow. And then after we were able to build back from that, of course, there was a pandemic, and it is hard to convince actors to go into a small studio and yell into the close proximity to other actors right. uh, during the pandemic. So we continue on with that and writing the next one, keeping one foot in front of the other, making horror films.
0: Fantastic. Well, we'll be looking forward to which job for sure. For me, I'll go through my usual litany. I'm a screenwriter and screenplay consultant, so check out my Howard Kastner Screenplay Consultation Facebook page. My blog is called Rantings and Ravings, and there I talk about issues related to screenwriting and movies. I've published two books of short stories on Amazon: The Starving Artist and Other Stories, and The Five Corporations and One True Religion. These are sci-fi, fantasy, and horror short stories. I've also published the second edition of my screenwriting book, My Rantings and Ravings, of a screenplay reader on Amazon. And I'm an amateur photographer, and you can find those on Instagram. The previous podcast was with writer, filmmaker, academic businessman Tony Klinger, where we discussed his father's, Michael Klinger's, film Get Carter, along with Bad Day at Black Rock, two films about characters traveling to another location to solve a murder. The next podcast will be with film enthusiast and podcaster Lisa Lihay, where we will discuss Memento and Spellbound, two movies about murder and memory loss. So with that, Andrew, I want to thank you very much for being a guest on my show.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It was a wonderful time.